Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning with me to Acts chapter 21. In preparation for spending a few minutes in God's Word together, let's go to the Lord and ask Him indeed to speak to us through His Word and by His Spirit. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we, your people, your creation, as human beings, you had to speak to us even before the fall. How much more after our fall into sin do we need to hear you speak to us? So Father, would you be pleased to unstop our deaf ears and enable us to hear your word, your truth, May it indeed be received by us, and may in the mysterious operation of your Holy Spirit, may we not only be informed, but be transformed from the inside out more and more into the image of our risen and reigning King Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Last week, we joined Paul and others on the way to Jerusalem, and we saw that on the road, as it were, actually on the sea lane, the sea route uh, to Jerusalem, um, Paul experienced both Christian fellowship and Christian disagreement. And in both the warmth of fellowship and in the seriousness of disagreement, nonetheless, there was both humility and love on display. And while we are all on our way to the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, as we read in Revelation 21, we know we will face suffering. And yet, we'll also be in the company of people who by God's grace will humbly love us and people who by God's grace we will also humbly love. In other words, as we are on the way to Jerusalem, the church is together on the way to Jerusalem. It's not a solo hike. It's what we're going to do maybe on uh, May 15th, right? A walk for life together. You might have said this yourself, but you might have heard somebody say this. Um, I thought following Jesus meant life would be easy. I mean... I might not say that to myself, but I certainly think that to myself often. But one of the things I learned in the Navy was this saying that the only easy day was yesterday. You see, as we'll see, life for those who follow Jesus can be tough, rough, and difficult, as we will see today, to the point of death. Remember Jesus' last words of instruction to his disciples before his betrayal, before his arrest. Remember John 16, 33? In me you'll have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, you'll have trouble. But remember he said, take heart. I have overcome the world. Well, today's text, I've got some great news for all of us. Today's text will help us indeed take heart, take courage, Be of good cheer in the midst of a world full of trials and temptations and difficulties and dangers. Beginning here in chapter 21, verse 17, we saw it a little bit in 16. uh, The focus is on Jerusalem. 
And this is Paul in Jerusalem, uh, and it, it might sound like an echo of Jesus in Jerusalem as well. In Jerusalem, we will see it'll be a scene, a center of aggressive opposition. It was a center of opposition to Jesus. It is going to be a center of opposition to the gospel as Paul enters Jerusalem. Here, after this quick sea journey to get there, today Luke slows down the pace, and the last quarter of Acts parallels the passion narrative of Luke's gospel. This is a realistic, necessary balance to Luke's report to this point of the church's triumphant advance. I mean, if you were, if you were reading Luke, excuse me, uh, Acts up until this point, you would just see the advance of the word, the advance of the gospel. And to be sure, by the end of Acts, the gospel gets to Rome. Nonetheless, what we're going to see in the next few weeks is opposition, difficulty. Paul, who sort of things went his way, now he's no longer in control, as it were. As we look at today's text, we've got to remember that, that Luke doesn't write everything. He, he selects things for his purposes. Uh, sometimes we all wish, why didn't he tell us about this? But we have to deal with what he did tell us, what's before us. Uh, Luke is purposeful. He writes for a purpose. Remember John at the end of his gospel that he writes that, that folks will believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And he writes his first letter saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, John writes John so that people would come to faith in, in um, Jesus Christ. And he writes his first letter so that people would be assured of their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, why does Luke write? Why does he write this two-volume Luke Acts? Well, at the beginning of Luke, he says, I'm writing an orderly account for you that you may have certainty. He's writing specifically to Theophilus that you may have certainty about which you have been taught. 2021, we're all living in a day of fake news, but note when people say something is fake news doesn't necessarily mean it's fake. It could be that they don't like it. So they write it off as fake news. Um, we're in a day and age of conspiracy theories where the, the evidence for the conspiracy theory's validity is that there is no evidence. Think about that. False claims are made. We make false claims. We all do. We're living in an age of false claims. Now, wrong beliefs are bad enough, but behavior based on them is worse. There are severe consequences, and I think we'll see that today as Paul faces false accusations. You know, it's important for all of us to be certain of the truth of Jesus. Certain of the truth of Jesus, of the gospel. Not arrogant, not presumptuous, not beat our chest certain, but quiet, gentle certainty. Knowing that your life is hidden with Christ in God, that, that you're secure in Jesus, that as we sang, he's that friend that will not leave you. And again, he's the friend that knows all about you. That, if you just think about that today, we should all be greatly encouraged. 
But I think our text will encourage us as well in the midst of this difficulty. Well, today, Luke's narrative account of what takes place in the first few days after Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, we'll see that between his arrival and his arrest, Paul is advised by believing Jews and he's assaulted by unbelieving Jews. So join with me as I read beginning in chapter 21, verse 17, and I'll go through the first half of verse 20. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. A great reception. It's warm. They are glad. Brothers in Christ are together. It reminds me of the end of Romans. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. James and the leaders of the Jerusalem church, Jewish, are welcoming Paul, of course, who's Jewish, but he's bringing along with him some Gentile believers that he's picked up along the way. And they're back presenting the gift that he had collected to the Jerusalem church. It's not mentioned until uh, later. Um, it's mentioned at the end of Romans. Um, but it's a warm reception. And, and, and the next day, or later that day, there's the report. It's a moment for missions that's not going to be 10 minutes, but probably all day, right? One by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, notice they didn't glorify Paul. They glorified God. They praised God. They, they knew that Paul's ministry, as Paul would say it, is from the Lord. It's in the Lord's name. It's for the Lord. And ultimately, underneath, it's by the Lord. Yes, Paul is an instrument, right? He's called to be an instrument of the Lord's to get the gospel to the Gentiles. But in this report, they don't tell Paul he's a great missionary. They praise God for being a great God. Last week, when we sang for the sake of the name, gather from every place trophies of sovereign grace. I think Paul is is opening up a trophy case in this city, in that city, in this city, in that city, trophies of sovereign grace. It's the outworking of Psalm 67. The light of Israel is going out to the nations and they are responding. So here is this interesting meeting. Paul, a Jew from Tarsus, not from Palestine, but a Jew, thoroughly a Jew, and He's been called to minister to the Gentiles and you've got James, the half-brother of Jesus, kind of referred to now as an apostle, the leader, a pillar of the church. And you've got the Jewish world and the Gentile world together. And we all know that that was the biggest separation, the biggest division. That's how Paul even describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, of that dividing wall of his hostility coming down and there being unity in Christ and I think we see in this reception kind of a test, a test of true Christianity. Um, James and the other Jewish believers are overjoyed that people outside the Jewish 
faith and culture are coming to know the Messiah and they rejoice. You see, a test of Christianity is, do we rejoice with the news that other people, unlike us, are coming to faith in Christ? Do we? Or do we only rejoice when someone just like us, who likes the same things we do, who likes the same music and the same art and does the same thing, is that when we rejoice? Or can we also rejoice when someone who's an awful lot not like us nonetheless comes to faith in Christ and therefore there is a union and a communion stronger than anything that the world can put in the way. Well, so far, so good. But now James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem seek to be proactive. They're going to give some advice. You know, Paul is coming back from some Gentile lands. and He's coming back to the, to the heart of Judaism, Jerusalem. Join with me as I pick up reading in the second half of verse 20 on through 26. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. I'll stop there. So they recognize that thousands of Jews have become believers, and yet they are zealous for the law. There's a tension here. You've got two leaders. It's Paul to the Gentiles and James to the Jews. And and James certainly is anticipating a potential problem. They both agree on doctrine. Salvation is by grace. They both agree on ethics, that the moral law must be obeyed. But here are the issues of culture and ceremony and and, and tradition. It's going to cause potentially a conflict. And, And so they recognize that, and then they present the rumor. You see, Paul's reputation has been taking a hit among many Jewish Christians. Um, His reputation is taking a hit. My friends, if I or you live for your reputation, it's a false God. Because the world, in one way or another, will step on your reputation. And we see that even today in Paul's ministry here in Jerusalem. You see, rumor has it, Paul, it's reached Jerusalem that you're encouraging the Jewish believers to ignore the law of Moses, even telling them to not circumcise their children. See, Paul, rumor has it that you're urging Jews who trust Jesus to abandon the Mosaic distinctions of our people. Paul's preaching, his teaching, his practice is subject to misunderstanding. These days... There's a lot of misinformation out there, right? Paul is misunderstood, and I think Paul's a pretty clear teacher. But Paul's following in the footsteps of Jesus, right? I mean, teacher of the year award, Jesus, yes. Is he misunderstood? Yes. 
So there's rumors. But there's a reality. Uh, take circumcision, for example, and you can go to Galatians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7. Um, Paul certainly insists that circumcision not be imposed on Gentiles. He never, though, demands that Jews abandon circumcision. You know, the presence or the absence of circumcision external was irrelevant to a person's relationship with God. And we saw that especially when we looked at Galatians a few years ago. But now we come to the recommendation, to the advice. Earlier, the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15 had spoken about Gentiles in the law, but here there's going to be a recommendation having to, to, to bear on Jews and the law. And let me pick back up um, with uh, verse 23 again. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Again, this recommendation has to do with Jews and the law. And, and, and you've got to, whenever you hear the word law, you've got to stop and think, wait a minute, are we talking about moral law that doesn't change? Are we talking about civil law, Israel as a theocracy? Are we talking about ceremonial law? So it's somewhat all wrapped up together in some sense. So anticipating trouble, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, urges Paul to join in with these purification rites of four men, these Nazarite vows that Paul indeed earlier in Acts we saw that he took so that everyone will know that there is just no truth to the rumor and that you, Paul, will be seen as a respecter of the law. James believes that there's a way in which Paul could demonstrate the orthodoxy of his own faith and conduct. Now, this proposal that is made is not compromise in the sense of sacrificing doctrine or morals, but rather it's a concession to practice. And so there's the recommendation. We already heard Paul took the recommendation. Why would he go along with this? Why was Paul conciliatory? Well, we already know that even though it's not mentioned, the offering was presented. That's an act of conciliation. And now... Paul, who's going to be big on unity between Jew and Greek, between Jew and Gentile, he, he's going to go along with this. He readily heeds the advice to demonstrate Israel's, his, his, his respect for Israel's um, heritage by participating. Now, some could see this as an unwise act of compromise. By others, it could be seen as proper flexibility, especially when it comes to the proclamation and defense of the gospel. Paul is guided, I believe, by what he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 23, that you heard read earlier. To the Jews, he became like a Jew. To the Greeks, he became like a Greek. Paul would not compromise the, the essential truth of the gospel, but he was willing to look like a Jew. He was willing to look like a Greek. Why? 
Because in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. There's one new man. An old commentator, um, William Barclay, says this. It is the sign of a truly great man that he can subordinate his own wishes and views for the sake of the church. There's a time when compromise is not a sign of weakness, but of strength. Knowing what is and what is not compromise is important. What to do and when to do it, it takes wisdom. It takes many counselors. I can't tell you the times that I've gotten myself in trouble by just listening to me. Do you all ever have that problem? Proverbs speaks of safety and security in many counselors, right? It's not foolproof. But you're in a better position if you get multiple counselors. Um, you, you all know that elders in the PCA take vows. And one of our vows is, do you promise subjection to your brothers in the Lord? And in one sense, Paul is doing that with James and the leaders of the church. They are making a recommendation. He doesn't have a strong thing against it. So he goes along with it. He's, in other words... For the good of the church, as Barclay writes, he's willing to, to make a concession. You know, a moment ago I said listening um, just to yourself is bad. But also, you know, there's an aspect of Bible study that's dangerous too because if you approach the Bible just as a rule book or an instruction manual, show me that verse, tell me what to do. You know, there was not a verse in the Hebrew scriptures that, that um, Paul could go to to know whether it was right or not to do what James and the others recommended. He took wisdom. And he trusted God with these men. We, I get in trouble if I think that this is an instruction manual. Are there instructions? Yes. That it's only a rule book. Are there rules? Yes. But if that's the overall framework that you see it and you don't see it as God's communication of salvation in Christ from beginning to end, if you don't see it as God's steadfast love and faithfulness to you through the word, then I would have to say you're approaching God's word wrongly. If you haven't already done this, there's a great article on our website called Applying God's Word for, to All of Life? Question mark The Use and Abuse of the Bible. And I encourage you, if you haven't read it, um, because here I think it applies. We need to move on now from advice to assault. And Edward Blakelock, a New Zealand theologian, said this, he, that is Paul, sought to love, to understand, to act in selfless humility. The result, by that tragic irony which heaven sometimes permits, was apparent disaster. <laughs> Indeed, James' plan to pacify Jewish sensibilities and refute Jewish slanders against Paul seemed to backfire. Let's take a look. Join with me as I pick up reading in verse 27 through the first half of 30. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! 
This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. I shall go into the first part of 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, who comes on the scene? The antagonist, Jews from Asia. It's the time of Pentecost. Paul wanted to get back to Jerusalem. Other Jews are pouring in. Paul here is following in the steps of Jesus. Jesus had antagonists. Remember, the Pharisees who watched Jesus had the clipboards taking notes. When is he going to defy the law of Moses? When is this supposed rabbi going to um, uh, tell us that something that we know, of course, is against the law? That's what's happening to Paul. These Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, they recognize him. They've been dogging him all along. He spent three years in Ephesus and he faces trouble from the pagans? Not so much. Trouble from the Jews? A lot. Paul is being followed, stalked by the religious, looking to bring a complaint against him, to file charges against him. And so what happens? Yes, they bring false charges. They jump to conclusions. What's the first false charge? Look at this. He's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. What's the accusation? Paul has chosen to insult the chosen people. He has chosen to break the law. He has chosen to defile the temple. If you've got a great memory, you can go back to Acts 6 and see this is pretty much the same charge against Stephen. Who remember, after proclaiming the gospel according to the Hebrew scriptures and speaking of Jesus... They were so enraged, what they, they, clo- they, they, they covered their ears and they screamed and they ran after him and stoned him. Why? Because he also was against the people and the law and this place. And there's another accusation. He has defiled this holy place by bringing Greeks into the temple. You see, between the court of the Gentiles, you would go into the court of uh, women, And then beyond that, kind of the court of male Jews. And then beyond that, the, the holy of holies entered into once a year by the, the chief priest. And so there's a placard between the court of the Gentiles and the court of women. And it basically says, enter at your own risk, penalty of death. And these placards have been found uh, through archaeology that you would face immediate violent death for trespassing a boundary. There's antagonist in the temple in Jerusalem. There there are false charges and then there is an assault, a flat out assault on Paul. Verse 30, all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. 
You see, nothing stirred up the crowd in Jerusalem like the charge of speaking against the temple and the law, especially when the possibility that the temple's sanctity or purity would somehow have been breached. They perceived Paul, of all things, as an apostate from Judaism. They had great zeal for the temple, for Torah, for the law, and for tradition. Again, verse 30, they dragged him out. The gates were closed, and they began to beat him to death for his blasphemy. It's ironic, isn't it? Paul is assaulted while doing the very opposite of what he's being accused of. He's in the process of showing respect, and yet he's falsely accused. And the mob is incited, and the crowd is riled up. Paul is committed to the unity of everyone through their identity in Christ. And he's also committed to respecting the cultural diversity between Jew and Greek that is also in Christ. It's amazing. Um, Here these people are, are saying that Paul is defiling this holy place. Their focus is on rules, external. Where's the defilement? It's in their own hearts. They think Paul is defiling the temple externally by bringing in a Greek, a non-Jew, past some barrier. Isn't it? Think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. External obedience, easy. Heart obedience, impossible. External obedience, murder, theft, whatever, easy. Internal obedience at the heart level, impossible. The one who's preaching the Sermon on the Mount is saying that the standards are so high for obedience that it's only going to be through my perfect life and my sacrificial death And my obedience credited to your account that you are going to be in a right relationship with God. And these Jews don't get it. As they were seeking to kill him, Roman justice came to the rescue. God came to the rescue, interestingly, through Paul's arrest. Join with me as I pick up at the middle, or I'll just read 31 again. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came out to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him, away with him. So the Romans have a quick reaction force. There is a fortress of Antonia. 
the northwest corner of the temple grounds, and there's a thousand Roman soldiers led by this commander. We'll find out his name in a little while. 760 infantry, 240 cavalry. And they come to the rescue. Uh, if anything bothered the Romans, it was a civil disturbance. They, they wanted to maintain order. And if the city is in an uproar and they can look down and see problems in the temple, they come down. And in God's sovereign providence, the pagan Romans come to the rescue. They, they rescued Paul, and it will not be for the first time, from his own people. And they didn't put him to death. They rather put him in protective custody. Here Luke is saying, just by a description, he's telling us the state's proper role toward the Christian and to the church. To protect the church from anarchy. To, to, uh, to allow us to be quiet and dignified, godly lives. To, to, uh, to seek out the truth via facts. The last word, away with him. The mob got so violent that Paul could not just be walked out to safety. He had to be carried out to safety and to be interrogated in the barracks. Away with him. Those of you that know your Bibles, I would think all of us do in this case. It's what we read in Luke 23, 18. Release Barabbas, the people say, away with Jesus. And a little bit later, like another verse or two, away with Jesus means crucify him. So the, the Jews that are stirred up are saying to Paul, not just get him out of here. No, he needs to be put to death. Why would someone like Paul who preaches, what, the gospel of the grace of God. Remember, that was his calling, his purpose. Why would people be in an uproar over that? Paul talks about this in his letters to the churches, but here's Luke's talking about it. You see, here is salvation by works versus salvation by grace, because salvation by works is us. It's natural. It's our default position. We're born wanting to justify ourselves by what we do. It's innate. It's who we are. You see, salvation by grace, though, is supernatural. It's acquired. Again, we see the mob rule of the religious, the mob rule of our own self-righteousness, religious heart that seeks and thinks that rule-keeping and obedience to get right and stay right with God are the sum and the totality of it all. Is there a part for rule-keeping and obedience? Absolutely, yes. It's the Heidelberg Catechism, guilt, grace, and gratitude. We're all guilty. God's grace shows up, and then we live a life of obedience out of gratitude for the grace that we have in Christ. Paul says, why does he do all of this stuff? Why does he become a Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greek? Out of love, right? The law of Christ, which he'll define as, as love. Faith working through love. Love of God, love of neighbor. 
So here, beginning in Acts 21 through the next couple of chapters, we're going to see these themes of Jewish hostility and opposition and Roman friendliness, as it were, and justice intertwined. God really does use common grace, as it were, to support his people and his church. Let us never forget the beauty and the blessings of just common grace. So let's make a quick evaluation. Did James' plan and Paul's agreement backfire? Was this not the way to go? You see, Paul was in the temple to show his loyalty to the faith of Israel. It's a, he, he had a worthy motive, and yet he was almost beaten to death as an apostate and a defiler of the temple. Think about the pain of his best intentions misconstrued in the worst light possible. Did Paul err in following this device? Paul says he's the chief of sinners, right? Did he err? Well, maybe in the short term, if that's all you look at, you almost got beaten to death, Paul. You almost blew your opportunity to continue to proclaim the gospel. But no, God's plan, of course, and this is a part of the plan, is to bring Paul to Rome. And he's taken that first step now that he's in the custody of the Romans. Now, we may think that, that, that Paul is some superstar follower of Jesus, but, you know, he's not the exception here. He, he's, he's the rule for those who follow Jesus. Think with me about yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. You see, it is true for the Christian, it's true for me, that the only easy day was yesterday. It's also true for all of those who follow Jesus, whether they be Paul or any one of us, that as we sang last week, he will hold me fast. Today, tomorrow, and forever. And as we will just sing in just a moment, though troubles assail us and dangers affright, though friends should all fail us and foes all unite, the Lord will provide. What are you going through right now? Are any of you hanging on by a, a, a thread? Are any of you all ready to give up, to quit, to in one way or another represent Christ to the world in a way which is not fitting of the gospel? He will hold you fast. And even though troubles of all kinds and all sorts may assail you, it's guaranteed that the Lord will provide. May God be pleased to help us by faith look back at our history that we've seen before us and move forward in our mission of testifying to the grace of the gospel of God that we find in Jesus Christ. Amen. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, if we're honest, we don't want to be beaten to death for the sake of the gospel. 
But we do know, Father, that we will suffer all kinds of deaths and injuries and pain along the way as we are faithful to the truth of salvation in no one else but Christ. Would you fortify and strengthen your people? Would you help us individually as families, as a church to grow in our trust that you will hold us fast and in our trust that even on the darkest days when the winds are strong and the friends are few and the foes are many, help us to rest that you will provide for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.